Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Yeah, that's me, Melissa. And thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. I'm going to start the lesson. This uh, one is called The Nation of Islam. It's not like Islam as a uh, religion. It's actually more like a cultic thing. And it's called The Nation of Islam. So listen to this. This is with uh, Rory Valkman. I'm going to do something tonight that I never do. So, so bear with me as as I do this. Um, let me explain to you first why I started studying and then writing on the Nation of Islam. When I was a seminary student, there were two events that that really caused me to think very pointedly about the relationships between Christians of various ethnicities. It it was one thing to see events in the culture at large that made me question whether or not uh, there were certain uh, ethnic tensions, so to speak. Um, Some would say racial tensions. I don't say that um, because there's only one race. Uh, The idea that there are multiple races is not a biblical idea. There is but one race. There are multiple ethnicities. But there is one race, all derived from the one man, Adam. You could possibly argue that there are two races, the race of the first Adam and the race of the last Adam, who are redeemed. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there, there are no racial distinctions between human beings as far as biblical Christianity is concerned. Okay. But there's much ethnic strife, and one would assume that within the body of Christ you wouldn't see that especially among seminarians, two things happened. One was the Rodney King trial. And, and I remember, you know, that there, are a lot of, there were a lot of cameras in a lot of places on that day. And the news, when uh, the, the verdict uh, came down, um, not the Rodney King trial, but the OJ trial, two things, Rodney King and OJ put together. News cameras when verdicts came down and the distinction between the response of black people and white people on both of those things was just amazing. For one of those, I was in the sort of common area, and I watched I watched a group of seminarians have the exact same ethnic divergence in their response on verdict day that the rest of the culture at large did. White seminarians largely responding one way and black seminarians largely responding another. And I filed that away. Another event happened in 1995, and that was the Million Man March. Louis Farrakhan, leader of the Nation of Islam, called for a Million Man March. And a lot of people remember Million Man March, and that sounds familiar, the idea of Million Man March. It was on October the 16th. Um, So two days ago was the 18th anniversary of the Million Man March. 
But the Nation of Islam is not celebrating the anniversary of the, quote, Million Man March. They're celebrating the anniversary of a holy day of atonement because that's what the Million Man March was called, a day of atonement for black men. Why was this significant for me during that period of my life? Louis Farrakhan, the head of the Nation of Islam, came to Houston, and he had a press conference in Houston leading up to the Million Man March. There were half a dozen or so black pastors in the Houston area who were standing shoulder to shoulder with Louis Farrakhan promoting the Million Man March. Now, remember, the Million Man March was a day of atonement. Among this half a dozen black pastors who were standing with Louis Farrakhan, two of them I was in seminary with at the time. And one was the moderator of the then Union Baptist Association in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I have some knowledge of the Nation of Islam, so I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted. This is a problem. Number one, I was bothered by the fact that these men were standing shoulder to shoulder with Louis Farrakhan promoting an event that Farrakhan was calling a day of atonement, just straight blasphemy to the blood of Christ. And the second thing that really struck me were that my, my, my brothers in seminary of other ethnicities were confused. And on the one hand, they were disturbed because they said, why would these guys be standing with and uniting with Muslims on something called the Day of Atonement? But on the other hand, they immediately had that white guilt reaction that says, it's a black thing I must not understand. So the response was to not engage. Well, that sort of started me on a journey and on a quest to bring to light more information about the nation of Islam, thinking, naive as I was, that if you just let people know what we're dealing with, then maybe we can make some headway in some of these issues. So that resulted in me turning my doctoral thesis in the direction of the Nation of Islam. The title of my doctoral thesis was A Critical Analysis of the History and Theology of the Nation of Islam with a View Toward an Effective Christian Response. It's boring. But since then, I've written a number of articles about it in more bite-sized pieces for other publications. Um, and, and one of those I want to share with you tonight. I wrestled with how um, best to present this. I don't want you to think that I'm mocking the nation of Islam. So there are a lot of quotes directly from nation of Islam sources in this. Because if I were to just tell you these are the things that these people believe, you would think that I was mocking the nation of Islam. But I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to keep in mind that picture of half a dozen black pastors in Houston, Texas, standing shoulder to shoulder with Louis Farrakhan and other representatives of the Nation of Islam because they fought the Million Man March going to Washington for a national 
Day of Atonement for black men was a good idea for them and for their churches. And many of their brethren of other ethnicities, most, the overwhelming majority, almost nobody took it upon themselves to challenge them on it because of this fear that we have. And it was, it was wrong on both instances. So here we go. The Nation of Islam is often characterized as a black Muslim sect. However, a closer look reveals that the movement is best classified as a quasi-Islamic black nationalist cult. Uh, these folks aren't Muslims at all. That's the great irony. You'll understand that more. The movement was established in Detroit around 1930 with the appearance of an enigmatic silk peddler named Wallace Fard. That name is incredibly important. You may have heard of Fard Muhammad or Farad Muhammad. Um, that, that's the individual Wallace Fard. He blended uh, allegorical interpretations of biblical texts, popular black nationalist rhetoric, strict legalistic morality, and Jehovah's Witness teaching to form the basis of what would become the nation of Islam. Um, you notice what's not present there? There's allegorical interpretation of biblical passages. And here's what you'll notice with the nation of Islam and with Louis Farrakhan. If you hear Louis Farrakhan speak, he's almost always quoting the Bible, not the Quran. So there's these allegorical interpretations of biblical passages, popular black nationalist rhetoric. There were a lot of different black nationalist groups at the time. There was a big back to Africa movement. There were um, other, you know, black nationalist organizations uh, at the time. So he blended some of their teaching, the black Moors and so on and so forth. Strict legalistic morality and Jehovah's Witness teaching. What's missing there is the Quran. What's missing there is Islamic teaching. The theological distinctives. The nation of Islam claims to be an Islamic movement. However, much of their theology undermines that claim. And due to the vast nature of this topic, the scope of this presentation is limited to the movement's doctrine of God, revelation, cosmology, anthropology, soteriology, and eschatology in a very limited sense. The reason for this delineation is threefold. One, these categories comprise much of the basis for Islamic theology. Second, these are areas where Christianity and Islam can be compared and contrasted with the nation of Islam. So you can see the difference between them and Christians and between them and Muslims. And third, uh, due to the reactionary nature of the movement, the nation of Islam doesn't have a, a well-documented theology apart from these categories. It's not even well-documented in these categories. So let's look at them. First, the nature of God. And so it begins. Nature of Islam teaches that, quote, God is a man, and we just cannot make him other than a man, lest we make him an inferior one. For man's intelligence has no equal in other than man, end quote. Elijah Muhammad also argued that, quote, if he were a spirit and not a man, we would all be spirits and not human beings. Did you follow this? God has to be a man just like you and me, not that the second person in the Trinity took 
on a human nature, as we would say. No, 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 no such thing. But that God is actually a man just like you and me. He attributes all the qualities of a man, including marriage, sex, frailties, weaknesses, and mistakes. All of those are attributed to God. So when the nation of Islam says Allah, they do not mean the same thing that Sunnis or Shia or others. They do not mean the same thing that Muslims mean when they say Allah. More specifically, NOI theology teaches that God is a black man, that he, the black man, created himself out of the blackness of space, took the color from the darkness from which he emerged. All that exists in the universe, according to this teaching, was created by black intellect. There's the other idea. Again, which is why this was so shocking to me. When you understand the nature of this movement, and their understanding that the black man is divine. Um, by the way, the other shoe drops. Uh, the white man is demonic. Uh, because blackness in its purity represents pure deity. The further away you get from blackness, the closer you get to pure evil. So that white people are pure evil. And black people are pure deity. Remember, six black pastors in Houston standing shoulder to shoulder with this movement for a day of atonement. How about the person of God? The fulcrum point in NOI theology is the belief that Allah revealed himself in the person of Wallace Fard in 1930. Remember, I told you that name was going to be important. Not just a guy. This was God. So when they say Allah, they're referring to this particular man, Wallace Fard. In Message to the Black Man in America, um, and this is Elijah Muhammad's sort of magnum opus, if you will, he states, I teach not the coming of God, but the presence of God in person. He continues, quote, Allah came to us from the holy city Mecca, Arabia, in 1930. He used the name Wallace D. Farb. He came alone. Today, if you get the newspaper that the Nation of Islam sells, in the back of it they have sections, what the Muslims want and what the Muslims believe. And they still state that Allah was the person, Wallace Fard, that Wallace Fard in 1930 was Allah. That was God. Again, these people are not talking about the same thing that Muslims are talking about. There's also the idea of the plurality of God. God's not the only God in Nation of Islam teaching. In fact, at the core of the Nation of Islam doctrine of God is the idea that while there is only one God at a time, no God lives forever. Hence, there must be a succession of supreme gods throughout the course of history. This is said to happen once every 25,000 years. They believe in these cycles of the earth, 25,000 years. The supreme God is the ruler of a divine council of 24 black scientists who govern the affairs of the world during each successive cycle. That council of 24 black scientists is going to be very important later on. Now, a critique of this, um, one of the things that, that they teach, if you remember, 
the idea of blackness is divine. The further away you get from blackness, you get toward pure evil. Well, one of these 24 scientists was uh, a, a, a scientist by the name of Jakob. And Jakob went to perform some experiments on the island of Patmos. That sound familiar to anybody? The island of Patmos, okay? So Jakob is, is, is performing these experiments on the island of Patmos. And it's these, experience, these experiments that he's performing that actually creates the white race. And the further he got away from blackness, the more evil these products of his experiment became until he created the white man, which is the devil himself, okay? So that white people are demonic. Now, the Nation of Islam calls this practice grafting. And they say in no uncertain terms that the grafting process cannot be reversed. So once you move away from pure blackness and you get to individuals who are white, you get to someone who is purely demonic, and you can't go back from there. Why is this so significant? Well, remember they say Wallace Fard was God, that he was Allah? Um, first of all, obviously there's no evidence to support his deity. Secondly, there's his flawed humanity. Um, for instance, uh, he was a bootlegger. He was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. Uh, he was sexually promiscuous. He abandoned his family, so on and so forth. Not very godlike uh, behavior. But he was also white. If you've ever seen um, Louis Farrakhan at an official Nation of Islam event, if you've ever seen one of his speeches in one of their halls, um, there, there's a couple of days that are very important. One is that day in October, this, this Holy Day of Atonement, commemorating uh, the Million Man March. Another one is Savior's Day, which is the end of Fe February, Savior's Day. And there's often a big to-do and a big speech that Farrakhan makes in February for Savior's Day. And behind him, there's always a picture. There's a picture of a guy who's not a black guy, not at all, not close to a black guy, not even kind of a black guy. It's a picture of Wallace Hart. This is the guy they say was Allah. But by their own definition, he would be a demon. Not only that, Elijah Muhammad, first main leader of the Nation of Islam, who came after. He's the main disciple of Wallace Fard. He was bi-ethnic, which means at least half demonic. Malcolm X, who became the most prominent teacher in the Nation of Islam before he converted to Islam. He was bi-ethnic which means he was demonic. Louis Farrakhan, the current leader of the Nation of Islam, is, you guessed it, bi-ethnic, which means by their own theology, these men are demons. And remember, the grafting process can't be reversed. There's also the idea of polytheism in the Nation of Islam. The idea of these 24 scientists 
again, Island of Patmos, the number 24, um, these things are coming from Revelation. There's also the idea of pantheism in the nation of Islam. Louis Farrakhan, in his book, A Torchlight for America, uses terminology reminiscent of the New Age movement in attributing deity to all mankind, in particular black people. In one instance, he states, one of the things that separates man from the beast is knowledge. Knowledge feeds the development of human beings so that the person can grow and develop into the divine and become one with the creator. Here he gets to the idea that what keeps the black man from asserting his deity is a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge. He has to come to the knowledge of who he is so that his deity is sort of activated, if you will. For them, as we'll see, that is salvation. What about their doctrine of revelation? How do we know God? Well, like most cults, they have a Gnostic hermeneutic. Nation of Islam believes that the knowledge of God was withheld from the world until the coming of Wallace Fard. Elijah Muhammad taught, quote, this is the first time that the true knowledge of God has ever been revealed. And we, the poor, rejected, and despised black American people, are blessed to be the first of all the people of earth to receive this secret knowledge of God. And that's the very definition of Gnosticism. There's a secret knowledge of God that was never revealed. And guess what? We are the first ones in the history of the world to get this secret knowledge of God. More specifically, Nation of Islam argues that, that white people are incapable of understanding either the Bible or the Quran, and that only those blacks that have experienced mental resurrection can attain this true knowledge. This approach is fortified by a claim that both the Bible and the Quran have been tampered with and are thus not trustworthy. No Muslim would make this claim. So, here we go. We have a secret knowledge of God that was withheld from the rest of the world until Wallace Fard came. This is Elijah Muhammad, who just happens to be Fard's disciple, and now his disciple, who's currently there today. In order to understand this secret revealed knowledge, you can't get it from the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is not trustworthy. Why? Because white people touched it. You can't get it from the Quran. Why? Because Quran is not trustworthy. Why? Because white people touched it. So where do you get it? You can only get it from a black person who has been enlightened, received the knowledge from and of the nation of Islam. Well, I don't believe you. Well, that's because you're trusting in tainted documents and you haven't accepted what it is that we teach you see the circular reasoning there? Alleged corruption of the Bible and the Quran. The black nation is said to be the author of both the Quran and the Bible. However, like all evil, the corruption of the holy books is attributed to the white race. The enemy has tampered with the truth in both books, for he has, per he has been permitted to handle both books. The NOI teaches that the Bible was changed in order to make slaves docile. This is a very popular argument. Um, for example, the Nation of Islam is 
the, the fastest growing religion among black men, especially in prison. Um, the idea is that, you know, what you think is a result of you being programmed. The white man has programmed you. He's taught you things that were designed to docilize slaves, all that stuff about turning the other cheek. That was just so the slaves wouldn't rebel. Um, you know, Christianity is slave religion. You need to get away from that slave religion. How do you know it is? Well, because white people taught it to you, and you can't trust them. Now we go back to the idea of Yaakov and the 24 sciences. Hence, the Nation of Islam doctrine of revelation does not account for the uh, preservation of the essential documents of its faith. Thus, followers are relegated to dependence upon their enlightened leaders for instruction in all matters. Teaching has two main consequences. First, the movement is forced into an apostolic hierarchy. You have to have an apostolic hierarchy. You, you, you've got nothing. How do you get truth? You can't read your Bible and get truth. You can't read Quran and get truth. You can only get it from your enlightened teachers, and you can only get your enlightened teachers through the apostolic hierarchy. Second, there's a need for either a restored text or a replacement text, which conveniently is something that has been promised. You know, I argues we are to change the two worlds, meaning Christianity and Islam, then surely we need a new book. Elijah Muhammad went on to promise there is another book that none has been able to see or read, its contents coming soon from Allah, the last Waiting, they were waiting for a last book. Again, critique, number one, circular reasoning. But here's number two. They're constantly using and referring to flawed texts. You listen to them and they're quoting the Bible. What's the Bible? It's a flawed text. You can't trust. On occasion, they'll quote from the Quran. Oh, it's the Quran. The Quran is a flawed text. You can't trust it. But you can trust me. So whatever I say about these texts, you know that that's the truth. What about the cosmology? I won't um, spend much time on this. But the Nation of Islam cosmology, what they believe about the created world, is a mixture of science fiction and the misinterpretation of key texts in the Bible and the Quran. Uh, first, the movement offers a fascinating account of creation. Quote, in the beginning, there was blackness, a triple blackness of space, water, and divinity. The one supreme God came into existence at the origin of the universe 76 trillion years ago. He willed himself into being in the form of a black man cell by cell in a process that took six trillion years. The first supreme one was a warrior who, in order to combat darkness and shed light, created the sun, which represents freedom and creativity, out of his fire, which is truth. He imbued the planets with life and had them submit to the sun and called it the solar system. The story includes life on other planets, an explosion that separated the Earth and the Moon, and it's not just any kind of, this was an explosion 
of of TNT. It was an explosion of TNT. wasn't even a nuclear explosion. An explosion of TNT that separated the Earth and the Moon. The God of the world at that time was actually trying to destroy the world because of evil, obviously, of the white race. But he failed in destroying the world. And instead, the explosion just separated a part of the Earth off that became the Moon. What about their anthropology? They believe about man. The world, according to NOI anthropology, is divided into two segments, one black and one white. By the way, when they say one black and one white, um, everybody who's not white falls into the black category. Um, for example, a lot of these individuals uh, were, were arrested during the Second World War because they would not register with Selective Service. Um, two reasons for this. One, they refused to fight against dark-skinned people on behalf of white people. Secondly, they believed that they were actually citizens of Mecca. They would change their names. They would either take, you know, the, you know, the X. A lot of people would become so-and-so X, um, but they would change their names, arguing that the other names that they had were slave names, um, and they would take the X until they came up with some Islamic word that they would, you know, then identify themselves with. So when they say black world, white world, it's not that they don't recognize other ethnicities. It's just that if you're, if you're not white, you're, you're almost one of them, one of us. The black man is divine, while the white man is demonic. Again, a black scientist named Yaku created these white men in a process that happened 6,600 years ago. When he did it, he also gave a decree. The decree was that the white man would rule for 6,000 years, but then his end would come. Let me move ahead. Their doctrine of salvation. Many argue that the nation of Islam has no soteriology, that they don't have a doctrine of salvation because they don't believe in an afterlife. Here, Lincoln explains, in their day-to-day living, the black Muslims are governed by a stringent code of private and social morality. Since they do not look forward to an afterlife, this morality is not related to any doctrine of salvation, end quote. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which the Nation of Islam teaches salvation. You have to understand that one of the goals in the Nation of Islam was actually to win black Christians away from Christianity. You've got to keep this in mind. That, that was one of the goals. That's why they teach so much from the Bible. They target churches. Um, they target black Christians. And what they try to do is undermine a faith in biblical Christianity. You can't trust that book. That book was made to docilize slaves. That book is all about slave religion, so on and so forth. So their theology is like a parallel to Christian theology. They call it Islamic theology mainly because that sounds exotic. But as you've already heard, there's almost nothing about it that's Islamic. Nothing. And so because of that, they do talk about salvation. Just a different version and a different idea. They 
trying to tell Christians this is not about pie in the sky. Not about the great by and by. It's about here. It's about now. Don't you want yours now? Salvation in the nation of Islam is tied to the here and now. Without a belief in the resurrection, their teaching is centered on the mental resurrection of the black race. This mental resurrection leads the black man to Islam, his true and original religion. The specific practices required include prayer, fasting, and the avoidance of the traditional black diet. It's interesting. If you look at the things that Muslims avoid, it, it, it doesn't look like a list that you would find from Judaism or a list that you would find from Islam. It looks like something that you find at a soul food restaurant. In Elijah's Teriology is summed up in Elijah Muhammad's statement, quote, regardless of our sins that we have committed in following and obeying our slave masters, Allah forgives it all today if we, the so-called Negroes, will turn to him and our own kind. That sounds like something from the KKK. Promises salvation if we'll turn to him and those like us. Turn away from people who are not like us. Again, I want you to remember this picture of six black pastors in Houston in 1995 standing shoulder to shoulder with this to go to Washington for a day of atonement. First, salvation in the, in the nation of Islam is for the black man only. As noted earlier, they view the black man as divine and the white man as demonic. White people can't be saved. Second, the sins of the black man, if you notice in the statement, are directly related to his contact with white men. Finally, salvation is tied to nationalism. One of the things that the black nationalists, that the nation of Islam, argue is that black people should be given a state in America. Pick one. Just give us a state. It's got to be a good-sized state. And give us all the resources of that state so that we can have our own nation. By the way, you have to support us for the first 25 years. That's their idea of separation. We want our people in America whose parents and grandparents were descendants from slaves to be allowed to establish a separate state or territory of their own, either on this continent or elsewhere. We believe that our former slave masters are obligated to provide such land and that the area must be fertile and minerally rich. We believe that our former slave masters are obligated to maintain and supply our needs in this separate territory for the next 20 to 25 years until we are able to produce and supply our own needs. Again, racism and separatism. What about their eschatology? Where's it all going? What are we looking forward to? Well, number one, the imminent destruction of the white devils. The central theme of the Nation of Islam's eschatology is the destruction of the white race in the seminal teaching 
on this matter. Elijah Muhammad states, quote, they were created to rule us for 6,000 years, and then Allah will destroy them from the earth and give the earth back to its original owners, the black nation. In fact, this, according to NOI teaching, was the primary reason for the coming of Allah. What about the mother planet and the destruction of the world? It's where it gets a little fantastic, as though it hasn't already. One of the most astounding beliefs in the nation of Islam theology is, that the, uh, is the idea of the mother plane. Uh, this man-made UFO, which spans one half mile, exists for the purpose of destroying the white race in the Battle of Armageddon. Elijah Muhammad, Muhammad described the plane. Listen, the great wheel, which many of us see in the sky today, is not so much a wheel as one may think in such terms, but rather a plane made like a wheel. The like of this wheel, like plane, was never seen before. You cannot build one like it and get the same results. Your brains are limited. If you would make one to look like it, you could not get it off the earth into outer space. This mother plane is out there waiting. It's waiting to rapture up the black race right before it sends smaller planes out to destroy the earth and white people. Uh, by the way, that ought to sound familiar to you. Maybe like a movie? Maybe like the movie Independence Day? In fact, the Nation of Islam sued the movie Independence Day for $40 million, saying that they stole the plot from the movie from the Nation of Islam's beliefs about the end of the age. Prior to this worldwide destruction, black people will be given one final opportunity to escape. If they do, they'll spend a thousand years on the mother plane until earth is remade and the world begins again with the original man, the black man. Then comes the hereafter. What's the hereafter? Describe the hereafter as an Islamic world of righteousness and happiness ever in the presence of Allah. The NOI hereafter is also said to be a place of complete peace, harmony, and well-being. Critique. This is fantastic. Surely fantastic. You can see that it's a hodgepodge of things that they've taken from uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament, from Revelation. Talk about Ezekiel's wheel in the middle of a wheel, thousand years that you're on the mother flame, so on and so forth. All of these things are absolutely fantastic. The average of this movement at its inception had only a fourth grade education. That would seem to explain the acceptance of such fantastic doctrines. Yet these doctrines remain at the core of the movement today. There are at least two possible explanations. First, theology of the movement could simply be hidden from observers and participants alike. A second possibility is that the socio-political or nationalistic aspects of the movement relegate the theology to a superficial role. The latter is the strongest argument. Therefore, any attempt to evangelize members of the Nation of Islam must not only understand that the movement's theology is distinct from that of Orthodox Islam, it must also account for the socio-political issues that form its foundation. 
again. Six black pastors. Right here in Houston. Two of them in seminary with me. One, the most prominent pastor in Houston's Southern Baptist life. They stand shoulder to shoulder with the head of this group promoting the Million Man March, which was a day of atonement. Nobody said anything. They didn't have mass exodus of members from their churches. They weren't scolded or reprimanded by their counterparts and their denominations. Their white brethren decided not to say a word about it to them, choosing instead to assume it's a black thing we just must not be able to understand. This is not hard to understand. These people are lost. Not only are these people lost, these people are deceptive. They are intentionally deceptive. And their deception has a goal behind it. And the goal behind it is that they would reach into the black church community and win converts. That they would be close enough to sound familiar, but distinctive enough to offer an alternative. That they would measure on socio-political issues that they would measure on the divide between black and white, and that they would do so in such a way that black people who were Christians would feel a tug in themselves between their Christianity and their blackness, and that in many instances they would put their Christianity aside and respond with their blackness. And that's what happened 18 years ago this week in Washington, D.C., as hundreds of thousands of black men walked on Washington, marched on Washington. Most of those men were not members of the Nation of Islam. So here's the question that we raised. I mean, this is, this is obvious. This is easy. We understand that this is cultic. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Now, here's the question. What is it that has so divided us that black Christians are willing to ignore this and align at times with the nation of Islam and white Christians are willing to ignore that response to fear of being judged racist. This is not a problem of theological distinction. This is a problem of sin and division in the camp. This is a problem of sin of Christians who happen to be black who are willing to put their blackness before their savedness. 
This is the sin of Christians who happen to be white who put their fear of being called racist above their desire to call for truth among those who claim to be fellow Christians. This is also about our ignorance. We've been played. <laughs> These people put on garb that often looks sort of Muslim. They look more like Shriners most of the time, but again, they call themselves Muslims, and they, the name of it is the Nation of Islam. And so we okay, they're Islamic, and they when they pray, they look like they're you know Islamic, and they greet each other with Assalamu alaikum, and you know that that you know they, they, that's you know Arabic sounding, and this you know all this sort of stuff, and that okay, that's great. So they're 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 this this Islamic group, but I don't understand this particular Islamic sect. You know now that that's not what it is. We all know now that that's not what it is. And here's my prayer. That because we all know now what it is, that the next time half a dozen black pastors line up at a press conference, standing shoulder to shoulder with these people, that the Christians in their churches would have none of it and that their fellow Christians who happen to be of other ethnicities will call them on it and have absolutely none of it. But there's a price to pay. Here's the question. Okay, you were there. You're in seminary with these guys. How come you didn't say anything? Uh, I did. You don't know me well enough to know. I did. Here's the response I got. You've been with these white folks too long. That's the response I got. You've been with these white folks too long. Because in their minds, there were some things that transcended their theological convictions. Chief among them, their ethnic heritage. God help us. For in Christ, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, nor free, no male, no female, no black, no white. We're all one in Christ. And if we're all one in Christ, then we all have a very simple and unified answer to stuff that sounds like this. And that answer is, that dog won't hunt. It's a simple no. It's a direct no. It's a no that says people who are united with this need to be gospelized. It's a no that says people who have a willingness to compromise and be a part of this has some severe deficiencies in their understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Pastors who are willing to unite with these people on something called a day of atonement are blasphemers. And there's no other way to look at it. 
This is a movement that most people know don't know much about. They go under the radar until a couple of times a year when they make certain pronouncements. But make no mistake about it. It's a movement to be reckoned with. My prayer for us is that we'd open our eyes to it, that we'd help others open their eyes to it, and that just as we've heard about dealing with Orthodox Islam, that we would press the claims of Christ and the gospel, because ultimately that's what these and all other people need. I'm going to take five minutes to answer questions, because I'm not going to be up here again to talk about this. And when we have our other Q&A, we're going to be talking about other stuff that Dr. White's teaching us on. Do you have a question or two about this before we go? The question is, did that book actually come yet? The answer is no. No, that, that book didn't actually come. Um, Wallace Fard disappeared mysteriously in 1934. It's believed that he was assassinated, kind of like Malcolm X was assassinated by other members of the Nation of Islam. Again, Malcolm X becomes an Orthodox Muslim, and before too long, he's assassinated in a very brutal, very public assassination by a paramilitary group called the Fruit of Islam. Um, they're the enforcers in the nation of Islam. They're the ones who killed him. Um, so, no, no book came from, from far. There has been no book, and, and we're still stuck with the same thing. As far as a doctrinal statement, um, um, you know, you, you, can, you can look them up online, um, org, um, and look up their beliefs. Um, and you can do a search for what the Muslims believe and what the Muslims want. You can get a copy of their paper and look at the back of their paper and just read it and shake your head. Um, but it, it's there. The doctrinal statements uh, are there. Do these six pastors, do they still hold true to their responsibility to their brother or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. See, th- this is not uncommon in quote-unquote black church circles. Um, there's this affinity with the Nation of Islam, with Mr. Farrakhan, um, because he says things that from a, from a purely socioeconomic perspective, um, you, can, you can hear him talk about things and about, you know, men being responsible and, you know, and taking care of your family and, you know, and not drinking and, not, you know, like you hear that kind of stuff and you go, yeah, you know, and things happen and he'll stand up and, you know, and, and speak against them or whatever. So there's this sort of, this sort of affinity you know, for him. And he's kind of a, 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 a uh, father figure in many parts of the black community. But that's because he's not talking about this stuff. And people just kind of ignore, ignore that stuff. Um, so, yeah. A- afterwards, you can go look up um, uh, Freddie Haynes in Dallas. Freddie Haynes passed a huge church in Dallas. Freddie Haynes had a sermon that next Sunday, after the Million Man March, he dedicated his time in the pulpit to, um, he, he called it a message from the march, and basically communicating to his people the word from God that Minister Farrakhan had at the Million Man March. And Freddie Haynes is still pastoring a church in Dallas, and it's bigger than it's ever been. You know, right there on I-20, big, giant church. Have we passed the time yet? The question is, have we passed that time when supposedly the reign of the white devil was supposed to be over? It was supposed to end in 1987. So 
Yeah, we're a little late, man. Y'all need to be scared. Who are some of the people that fund them? Um, that's a great question. Um, they are they are the 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 wealthiest quote black organization in the United States. Um, they're in Chicago now. They're based in Chicago, um, and they have they have massive wealth. Um, some of the people who fund them are Muslims from the Middle East. Uh, for example, I mean, several years ago, um, there, was, there was one very prominent uh, leader in, in the Arab nation um, that was a, a known, you know, not a friend to the U.S., who gave a million dollars, you know, which was nothing for him. It was oil money, you know, a million dollars to the nation of Islam. But there are people, you know, who, who are, you know, who, who are funding them from there. Uh, the, the big thing that was happening then, here, here's a big controversy that came up. Um, slavery. Um, you know, the, there are as many, if not more, slaves in the world today than there have ever been, most of them in North Africa. Um, many of them, um, you know, enslaved uh, Christians in predominantly uh, Islamic countries, um, Sudan and Mauritania, um, huge slave trade. Uh, you know, forced slavery there, and there was a big article that came out about slavery and the slave trade. Folks went to the Nation of Islam saying, okay, if anybody is going to condemn this and speak on this and bring this to light, it would be Louis Farrakhan um, because of some of the folks who were lining his pocket. He said nothing. He couldn't. There are a lot of people who support him. Is there a connection between the call for reparation and the wanting to have a black state? What, what do you mean by the call for reparation? Oh, just kind of the general reparation movement? Um, yes and no. Um, that, not, not necessarily so. But the, the Nation of Islam has been calling for reparations for a long time. Uh, there are other people completely unrelated, you know, who are called for reparations, slavery and things of like that. But no, they're not. They're not necessarily connected, and they're definitely not connected to the idea of, of statehood, having a separate a separate state. Yeah, um, two things. Does Nation of Islam go by other names? Oftentimes, they're referred to as Black Muslims. Um, generally, it's either Nation of Islam or Black Muslims. The Black Israelites would be a different group but they would come kind of from the same stream. Again, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff behind why, why this thing started in Detroit in that particular period of time, um, you know, the time during the Depression. And um, there are a lot of other black nationalist movements. Um, so, yeah, they, they would come from the same stream, but they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be the, same, the same movement. Yeah. Well, isn't that a big question? You know, what can we do to enlighten people and enlighten churches that dwell in that ignorance? Um, yeah. Here's the thing. Take care of your circle. Take care of your sphere of influence. Take, take care of the opportunities that God gives to you. And if God broadens that sphere of influence, then you take care of that. But just worry about your circle, you know. And to the degree that he gives you influence and he gives you opportunity, uh, you can share these things. That may lead to more influence, more opportunity to share these things. It's the same with anything else. 
you just you worry about your you worry about the circle that he's giving you, you know. People aren't generally aren't too keen on hearing from folks who just kind of parade in saying, "Hey, you need to know this," <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, one more. Yeah, good question. Um, outside of places like you know Chicago, New York, Detroit, um, is this really a major issue? Uh, it's a ma- it's definitely a major city issue. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an issue where there are dense urban populations. Um, it's an issue within our prison system. It's a huge issue within our prison system throughout the country. So yeah, it, it is. It is an issue, and it, and it, and it is a, a pervasive one. Although it's kind of demographic in nature, obviously. You know, um, the other question about Louis Farrakhan. He's old. He has prostate can He had prostate cancer. He's been, I don't know if he's been treated for, for that, if he's, you know, remission, cure, whatever, but he, he's, he's up there now. Uh, you know, what happens when he's gone? A lot of people ask the same thing about Elijah Muhammad. Here's Elijah Muhammad. Nobody knew Louis Farrakhan, you know. Who's that? And then Elijah Muhammad's gone. You know, a son of his takes one group one way. Louis Farrakhan, who is head of the Fruit of Islam, um, you know, goes another direction. He, he becomes he becomes the guy. Um, they've got a lot of resources, you know, and organizations with a lot of resources tend to have somebody pick it up and move it on. And there are a lot of other groups out there that are very close and very similar. Um, you know, these ideas that the new Black Panther movement and things like that. You know, they got Cornell X here in Houston. He used to be, you know, Nation of Islam guy. Now he's a new Black Panther you know, guy or whatever, um, you know, there, there, there are tons of streams out there that are very much connected to this, and it's not going anywhere. It, it, it has a lot of traction with people, unfortunately. So I don't think that Louis Farrakhan's passing will, will, will mean the end of the nation's life.
that's their very low moral standard, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Listen to what Jesus said. No one is good but one, that is, God. And listen to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. There is none who does good, no, not one. Here's a video produced by Dennis called How to Be a Good Person, in which he says, to become a good person, you need a genuine desire to be one and actively take steps to achieve it. In other words, anyone can become a good person. So either God is lying and saying that there's none good, not one, or Dennis is lying and saying that you can become a good person. And we know that it's impossible for God to lie. But there's one more massive issue with this belief that I've yet to address. Watch how I respond to these people who think they're a good person and then afterwards, I'll address by far the biggest area in which Dennis is clearly wrong. Watch until the end. You won't want to miss it. If you look up the dictionary, it's got over 40 different definitions. Number one is moral excellence. You're morally excellent. Are you going to give me an interview? Are you a good person? Are you going to make a deal? You are? Yes. What's that? I've done things that are wrong. Will my good outweigh the bad? Can I earn heaven by doing good things? Definitely. I think you can mess up and still um, get in good graces with God. We even up the balances? Yeah. So that'll work on judgment day? Yes. Try that in a court of law. Let's say you've committed a very serious crime. You've robbed a bank, shot a guard. And you say, Judge, I know I'm guilty, but I do some good things. The judge is going to say to you, what are you talking about? This is a court of law. I'm here to judge you on your crimes, not the good things that you've done. That's how justice works. So if it's not going to work in man's court, how could it work in God's court on judgment day? What do you think God is like? I think God's just the supreme being, maybe. Is he angry? No. What would you think of a judge who's got a rapist before him, who raped a woman and then murdered her, strangled her to death? Should the judge be passive or should he be angry? The judge is not personally harmed by that individual. The judge's job is to be objective and look at all the facts and the evidence and carry out justice as he sees fit with that. Carrying in anger carries some sort of prejudice towards this person rather than looking at them as an actual human being. Is that a wife? No. Is that a mother? Yeah. You love her? Yeah. Let's say some guy raped her and strangled her death. I'd be extremely upset. You'd be angry? Yeah. That a boy, that shows you've got some sense of justice. You'd like to see justice done. Well, God's like that on steroids. Ever seen an L.A. freeway chase? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Have you ever heard the commentator? He's in a helicopter. He says, ah, he's just gone through red light. Now he's on the wrong side of the road. Every time he breaks the law, he's making it worse for himself. Ever heard that? Of course. That's what's happening with you and I. We do things that are morally wrong, and every time that happens, we're storing up God's wrath for the day of judgment. Do you think walking around and spreading the word that God's angry at everybody, because that really feels like what you're trying to do right now is like an appropriate way to spread God's word? That's fantastic to be your belief, but I believe that God or the higher spirit comes from a place of love. Let me make this make sense to you by asking you a question. Do you think you morally are a good person? Yes. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, as many as anybody. I used to sell cars. They've stolen something. Yeah. Have you used God's name in vain? Probably. It's using God's holy name as a cuss word. Do you love your mum? Have you ever used her name as a cuss word? Substitute it for S-H-T? No. No. That would be horribly dishonoring. Yeah. Because you respect your mum. 
but you don't respect the God that gave you a mother. You've taken his holy name and used it in place of a cuss word to express disgust. That's really serious. It's called blasphemy. You've done that too? Absolutely. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? No. When did you last look at pornography? When I was younger, like in middle school. So you started young. That's lust. Oh, yeah. That's just committing adultery in your heart. Sex before marriage. Yep. So, Cameron, not judging you. This is for you to judge yourself. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterous heart, Mm -hmm. and you have to face God on judgment day. He judges you by those ten commandments. You're going to be innocent or guilty? By what you're saying, guilty. If you stand before God's law, that perfect law we've looked at, those Ten Commandments, are you going to be innocent or guilty? I'm, going to be, uh, I'm actually going to be more innocent than most. It's a relativist statement I just made, but there it is. Well, the Bible says we're all guilty, every single one of us. It says all liars love their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So, Gilbert, you're in big trouble on Judgment Day. I would hope so, because, like, I don't think I've done anything that bad, but... Well, let me tell you how bad it is in God's eyes. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? No. It's saying that God... You've heard it? It's saying that God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal who's committed multiple murders, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person, judge. I don't think I've done anything really bad. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious this is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what is due to you. This is what you've earned. A lady's sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So I'm horrified at the thought of you ending up in hell because I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. So here's the big question. We're talking about God's love, and I said we'd come to it. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? I don't know. You ladies heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Yeah, the sacrifice. Sacrifice. So how can that help you 2,000 years later? How can his sacrifice help you in your terrible dilemma? I would have to sacrifice some more of myself, I would say, anyway. No, you don't need to. He gave his son on the cross. Exactly right. And most people know that, but they don't know this. And Cameron, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you leave if someone pays those fines. He says you're out of here, guilty though you are, someone's paid your fine, and it's legal to let you go. Well, God can take the death sentence off you in an instant because Jesus paid the fine in full on the cross. And all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins, that is, turn from them, and put your trust in Jesus. The Bible says that. Just trust in Jesus. Like you trust a parachute. Trust in him. He's the rock of ages that was cleft for us. Can you play rock of ages for me? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let me just give a little backdrop to that hymn. Moses said, God, let me see your glory. This is back in the book of Exodus. And God says, you can't see me and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'll let my goodness pass you by. And the reason God says I'll hide you from my goodness is because God's goodness would kill us if we stood in his presence. Like a judge looks at a criminal that's committed multiple murders of children, but that judge is a good judge 
he'll be furious. If he's not a good judge, he won't be angry. He'll say, oh, a couple of months in prison. If he's got goodness, he'll bring down his gavel in wrath. His wrath will be in direct proportion to his goodness. And God's goodness demands justice for you and I. And if we stood in his presence, he would kill us in an instant because of his goodness, his justice. That's why he provided a savior, a rock that was cleft for you and I, that we might hide ourselves from that justice of God. Do you please think about what we talked about? Oh, yeah. You will? Of course. And Gilbert, do you have a Bible at home? Yes, I do. When did you last read it? Oh, I, when I was 10 years old, my father made me read uh, the entirety of the Bible, and it took me a while because it's a tough read. And obviously, your father loved you, and so do I, and so does God, and so do the people that are watching this. And we'll be praying for you that you find a place of true repentance and, oh, yeah. and that you'll trust in Jesus and be in that rock that was clear for us. You can be forgiven your sins. You can be saved from God's wrath if you repent and trust in Jesus. And as I said, you'll never do that while you've got a wrong image of God's character. Well, you think he's that snuggly, cuddly teddy bear, but please, think about what we talked about with the seriousness, because you don't know when you're going to die. You could die in your sleep tonight, and I don't want that to happen to you. I want to see you in heaven, not in hell. Cameron, can I give you a book I've written? Sure. It's called Scientific Facts in the Bible. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Nice to meet you, man. Thanks for listening. No problem. Thanks for the conversation. I just gave you a couple of In-N-Out cards, and you said, I can't eat In-N-Out because I've got heart problems. Yeah. What heart problems have you got? I don't know. I'm working it out right now. Well, you better get right with the Lord because your heart can yeah. give out. <laughs> so I knew when you told me back that this is where we're going to go. That's right. Hey, I get it. This is I, deadly I, serious. I, no, no, I get it. It okay. is deadly so serious. Please think about what we talked about, okay? Of course. Well, why do you think I accepted your book? So that I can read it and understand where you're coming from from a better place of understanding rather than a quick... 10-minute conversation between two strangers. Well, that's correct. While the conversation is greatly appreciated, this will give me greater insight as to where you're coming from. Well, that's wonderful. Hey, can I pray for you in your heart condition? Yeah, for sure. Let me pray. Father, I pray for Cameron. Thank you for his open heart today and listening to the gospel. I pray he'll think about it and that you'll do a work in his health and strengthen his heart. Can I ask a question about how you feel about other religions? Yeah. Like... I mean, we don't. You can put it on video if you want. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I just wanted to be more of like, sorry for the word. It's probably not super appropriate, but more like devil's advocate because I feel like sometimes people get too sunk into their own religious sect, right? I believe that there's good things that you can take from the negative and positive aspects of all religions. And so, how do you feel like you incorporate that into your teachings and how you're preaching on the street? Or are you solely based off of, I believe in Christianity, and that's the only place I'm coming from? Well, that's a great question. Let me try and answer it for you. If you study all the great religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, etc., you'll find they've got one thing in common. They're all what's called works righteousness religions. They Mm -hmm. think they can earn eternal life by doing things. For Judaism, it it is works. You earn salvation. Period. End of issue. When I had this discussion with a with four Christians just this past week. It's a long dinner. One of them was a pastor. And I, when I mentioned that we have to strive to be good and that God rewards the good and punishes the bad, so he said, well, what is the definition of good? Is it good enough? I think that's what he meant, to attain salvation, to use a Christian term or go to heaven and get rewarded in the afterlife, that's for God to determine. I don't claim that I know what is good enough. That's God's determination. That's true. So then for
for the Christian, the question would arise, well, then you don't have any assurance that you'll go to heaven, to which I would say, that's true, I don't have an assurance. I think if God judges justly, I think I have lived a life that has merited reward, but ultimately that is for God to judge. But the Bible says we can't earn eternal life. It comes by the grace of God. And the thing that changes that whole equation is that God is a judge, and we've broken his law, so anything we offer God in the area of religious works aren't good works. They're attempts to bribe the judge of the universe to forgive our sins and grant us everlasting life. Through the Messiah, God provided a savior for all humanity. That's what the Bible says, whosoever will may come. So that's good news for Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. Anyone can have everlasting life if they simply repent and put their faith in Jesus, the God-given Messiah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now let me ask you another question. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. How does that make you feel? Saying that if you're genuinely saved, good works will issue from your faith. Faith without works is dead. There must be evidence. You know there is a battery in your flashlight because it shines. And Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So if you're a Christian, you'll be rich in good works, and that'll be evidence of your faith. Make sense? Yeah. And God will give you a new heart with new desires, so you love righteousness instead of sin. Is this making sense? Yeah. Yeah. Making sense to you? Yeah. Going to think about what we talked about today? I am. I don't want to go to hell. Well, <laughs> I want to go to heaven. That's a very good reason. Jesus said, Fear not him who has power to kill your body, and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and destroy your soul in hell. He said, Fear him, so be serious about that. So, when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Um, right now. Say that again? Right now. Do you mean that? Yeah. You realize what you're doing? You're giving up the bath and you're saying, God, I've done things that are morally wrong. I need your mercy. Are you sorry for your sin? Yes. I'm sorry for my sin. Of course I am. And there's one other thing to bring into the equation. You don't know when you're going to die. You could die tonight in your sleep. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. So this is deadly serious. And then examine my motive. Why am I talking to you so earnestly? It's because I know this to be true and I really do care about it. Would you ladies be embarrassed if I pray for you? No. Okay, let's bear in prayer. Father, I pray for these two young ladies that this day they'll see the seriousness of their sins and find a place of genuine sorrow. They'll understand the cross, that you extended your love, expressed your love by Jesus dying on the cross for us. And this day, may they turn from sin and trust in him and pass from death to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do, actually. I'm going to give you a Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular Gospel tracks, Available at livingwoods.com. If you've never seen
if you do not have in the sacrifice of Christ a finished work that accomplishes what Father, Son, and Spirit intended in eternity past, then you cannot have any certainty as to the results. You cannot have any certainty as to the righteousness that is imputed availing before the Father because you don't have the intercessory work because that's not a finished work either. Rome, in its worship, has Jesus up on a cross everywhere. And yet what his word says he accomplished on that cross is not proclaimed from the pulpit of the Roman Catholic Church because they don't have a finished work. By turning it into something that is represented, not a, not a new sacrifice, but an unbloody representation of the one sacrifice that does not perfect anyone for whom it is made. Why is it that I can ask a Roman Catholic priest, Peter Stravinsky, who is the blessed man of Romans 4? And he's like, well, I hope to be. And that's the best they can do. That's the issue. That's the issue right there. That's because there is no finished work. You and I as Christians have a tremendous small responsibility to share the gospel. Now, would you say that every Christian has this? responsibility every christian has this gift because often people just go well it's not my gift it's not a gift i'm an introvert yeah it's like if you watch a, a marathon runner finish a marathon he breaks the tape and he's standing there and sweating you go up and say oh you're so gifted he might <laughs> turn around here and say what are you talking about i've run 30 miles every week for the last year i haven't eaten chocolate or ice cream i've denied myself i've bruised myself i've fallen over i'm full of sweat and pain this isn't a gift it's hard work and evangelism is exactly the same thing. You see me break the tape and say, oh, Ray's really good at that. No, no. I put my foot in the mouth. I've bruised myself. I've denied myself to get to the position I'm in. You. Technologically savvy Noah. This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit our life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter. When we were constructing our 510-foot-long Noah's Ark, we were mocked by secularists. They claimed we shouldn't be using technology to build the Ark since Noah didn't. Or did he? Actually, we don't know what kind of technology Noah had, because his world was completely destroyed in the global flood. But we do know that Adam's descendants were intelligent people, made in God's image, just like us. There's no reason to believe they didn't have amazing technologies. In fact, the Bible tells us that just a few generations after Adam, people were working with bronze and iron and building cities. Imagine what else they could have done. Plan your visit to our popular full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. A frequent one-liner I get told when challenging New Age teachings in the church is, you can judge this Christian teacher or Christian mystic by their fruits, implying that if they are a nice person, then they are producing good fruit in their character or their teachings. So they use their niceness to tell whether or not they're a false teacher or not. How do these several scriptures actually apply in the New Testament when it comes to discerning a false teacher by their fruits? That's a great question. Okay, uh, this is probably going to be another long-winded answer because I looked up the scriptures, and I'm going to give some thoughts. Okay, first, this comes down to one question for me. What are fruits? Because people seem to think that fruit are good works. 
if you're doing good works, then this must mean that whatever you're teaching and saying must be true then, right? So by this logic, I can look at anyone of any belief system, from atheist to Buddhist to secular humanist to Mormons, and think, wow, they are so nice. What they say must be true then. I mean, I think even Satan can be nice. An angel of light looks like light, and people are drawn to this light. And this is done by being nice and loving, but it's really just darkness. So just look at the New Age movement and the cultural climate right now to see how this is abused. Everybody's a walking coexist sticker. They're nice. Basically, the test of what's true is based on the critical analysis and test against reality of the person making the claim. Not simply if they're doing good works or not. I think that's a terrible litmus test. So if you think it out to its logical conclusion, that logic fails miserably. So then the next question is, but then how does this work scripturally? And I'll do my best to break this down. Let's look at the scriptures. And I remember that this first one is in Matthew 7 because Matthew 7 was misused all the time by New Age teachers. And it still is. All right, in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, it says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In hindsight, I always thought it was interesting that not a lot of New Agers really focused on the next few verses in Matthew 7 about people who claim, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, but he turns them away because he never knew them. But I digress. Okay, there's a lot to say here. But first, we need to recognize what fruits of the Spirit are. And the next place that fruit is talked about is in Galatians. We have Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, now this easily can hash out some people who don't fit in the fruits of the spirit category. They're of the flesh, not of the spirit. So people who claim to be believers but live like the world are clearly producing bad fruit. I say many progressives and people in general fall into this category. I think progressives are a textbook example of false prophets. They call themselves followers of Jesus, but deny him at the same time. They follow a different Jesus and a different gospel. They think they're sheep, but they are actually wolves, and they're not the only ones. A lot of people fit into that category. But I think that people get mostly caught up on the people who seem to be producing good fruit, right? And they call themselves Christians, but they're actually maybe they're false teachers or teach questionable theology, right? They don't do any of these fleshly things. They seem to exhibit love, joy, peace, and all the other positive aspects of the spirit. I think uh, three things are important here. First, number one, we should pay attention to the manner of living a teacher shows, okay? Do they show righteousness, humility, and faithfulness in the way they live? 
Many do, but there's more to look at here. We should pay attention to the content of their teaching. Is it true fruit from the word of God? Or is it man-centered, appealing to ears that want to be tickled? Then there's the effect of their teaching. Are people growing in Jesus, or are they merely being entertained and eventually falling away? Are people being hurt spiritually by their bad theology? Time is the best tattletale. I think that a lot of people might be too quick to judge on what they would consider good fruit. It's the rule of wait. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying about the tree. You've you got to wait to see sometimes. Also, it says a lot about a person when they're defending a teacher by their acts of kindness rather than comparing their teaching to the Bible. People tend to idolize certain pastors or teachers, especially NAR-associated teachers, and take what they say at face value because they seem to have the red phone to God. They think, well, they're so nice and they love everyone. They do so many good deeds. They are excellent role models. Surely what they say is true. And whenever you claim to be a prophet or apostle of God, there seems to be an element of not questioning their authority. Don't touch thy anointed, right? This is very strange to me because someone could be just a total jerk and still say something true. The, the overall point is that we follow truth, not people. So if someone is just a total jerk, right, and they come up to you and they say three times six is 18 and then they kick you in the shin and leave, you're not going to think, wow, nothing he said was true. Then think the opposite. And then someone with a coexist sticker on their forehead and a love is love t-shirt walks up to you and says that you are a bright light, hands you a $100 bill and gives you a hug, and then says three times six equals potato. Oh, and also men are women. Your job is to follow truth not the person in both of these instances. So both of these scriptures in Matthew and Galatians, right, have to be interpreted in light of other scripture. So watch out for false prophets. Well, what is a false prophet? What does that look like? Right? We're going to have to go in other parts of scripture and have that inform our understanding of what a false prophet is. And the fruit that I see that he's talking about has a lot to do with their teaching, not just the fact that they're nice. I think that there's fruit of the spirit that we have, which kind of flows into Galatians 5. It's talking about fleshes versus what the spirit is. And the other thing to notice that's very interesting in Galatians 5 is that he says that against such things there is no law. Well, what law is he talking about, right? The law of God is written on our hearts. So if you have these fruits of the spirit, you're having the Holy Spirit dwell in you. Romans 8 talks about this. It's impossible to please God without the spirit dwelling inside of you. So hopefully this helps. Hopefully uh, I was able to shed some light on the scriptures to help it make a little bit more sense to you. Was the ark big enough? This is Ken Hare, and our popular 510-foot-long ark is located in northern Kentucky. Have you ever wondered how Noah fit all the animals on the ark? Well, Noah didn't need all the species we have today. He needed only two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal. Kind is a broader term than species, usually at about the family level of classification. So Noah only needed a few thousand animals. And for the bigger animals, like some dinosaurs, he could have just taken younger, smaller ones. The ark was massive. 
It had the capacity of 450 tractor trailers. That's more than enough room to fit the few thousand animals and the supplies Noah needed on the ark. Come and see our reconstruction of Noah's Ark for yourself. Plan your visit to Northern Kentucky at the website of AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D. R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. How did Noah care for the animals? This is Ken Ham, editor of the powerful book on Noah's flood, A Flood of Evidence. Many secularists mock the account of the flood, claiming there's no way just eight people could care for all the animals on the ark. Now, as we learned yesterday, Noah only needed a few thousand animals on the ark, far fewer than most people think. And consider that today, many farms care for thousands of animals using labor-saving devices. Gravity-fed troughs provide food and water for several days, cutting down feeding time. Sloped floors send waste toward a central ditch to make waste removal easy. These devices reduce the time spent caring for the animals. Noah could have easily employed these same technologies. There's so much more to learn about the account of the ark and the flood, as well as our full-size reproduction of Noah's ark. Learn more at AnswersRadio.com. First Timothy 2.11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So according to the Bible, a woman is supposed to sit in church and be quiet, right? She's supposed to keep her mouth shut and leave the talking to the men. Yeah, good luck with that, honey. I love you, sweetie. Uh, All right, so that's not the meaning of that verse. Rather, it goes with the full instruction that follows. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The context here is church leadership, which continues on into chapter 3. Basically, a woman can't be a pastor or an elder in a church. That's no less controversial, but it's what the Bible says, and this instruction is universal to all people in all cultures at all times. It's not exclusive to the time period in which the Apostle Paul was writing this. 
How do we know that? Because Paul, exercising his authority as an apostle, goes all the way back to Adam and Eve with his explanation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So because Adam was formed first, and because Eve was deceived by the serpent, a woman is prohibited from being an authority in the church. She can teach children, and she can teach other women. And she can lead others to Christ. Priscilla did that for Apollos, along with her husband, Aquila. But she can't be a pastor. Any church that appoints a woman as a pastor would be in biblical disobedience. There are other ways a woman can find godly fulfillment that a man cannot. But the authority in the church is commanded for men to step up and lead. Uh, was that a good explanation, love? Yes, very good, sweetheart. Aw, thanks. <laughs> and that's when we understand the text. Noah, did he build it alone? This is Ken Ham, author of the kids' rhyming book about the flood and his unknown. When we built our life-size ark in northern Kentucky, it involved hundreds of people. So many people wonder how Noah could have done such a big project with just his three sons. Now, Noah wasn't under the same time frame as we were. He had a lot more time. And he didn't have to build it to withstand years of wear and tear or to meet specific construction and fire codes. And he didn't have to fill it with high-quality exhibits. So he had it a bit easier. But all that aside, Scripture doesn't tell us that he did or had to do it alone. Noah probably hired others to help him with the project, and he used the opportunity to warn them of the coming flood. Discover answers to your questions about Noah, the ark, and the flood at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged in your Christian faith at AnswersRadio.com. Decisions we would make so that... Molinism is a system of theology that attempts to reconcile divine sovereignty and human freedom. It was devised by Luis de Molina, a 16th century Jesuit priest, who said that prior to creating the world, God knew what we would do in any given circumstance. God created those circumstances and put people in them, knowing the decisions we would make so that his purposes are ultimately achieved through our free will actions. Molinist William Lane Craig wrote the following. By his middle knowledge, God knows all the various possible worlds which he could create and what every free creature would do in all the various circumstances of those possible worlds. For example, God knew that Peter, if he were to exist and be placed in certain circumstances, would deny Christ three times. So God created that world. Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? In Craig's example, the only decision Peter can make is the one God knew Peter would make in the circumstances he put Peter in. In the Molinist universe, Peter does not have free will, and neither does God, for he cannot do what we won't do. God's will is determined by our will, even before we come into existence. That is just absurd. Acts 15.18 says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. And Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Molinism is a false doctrine named after the heretic who came up with it because he hated the doctrine of God's sovereign decree. The Bible says God knows the future because he has determined it. Isaiah 46.10 says that God has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose when we understand the text. Dinosaurs on the ark. 
This is Ken Ham, hoping you'll make plans to bring your family to our Ark Encounter. At the Ark Encounter attraction, we feature several pairs of sculpted dinosaurs to depict how they were housed and cared for by Noah and his family. Wait, how could dinosaurs fit on the Ark? Well, the average dinosaur is only about the size of a bison. Most weren't the towering giants we usually think of. But what about the ones that were really big, like T-Rex? Well, the biggest dinosaur egg discovered so far is only about the size of a football. So all dinosaurs started out small. God would have sent younger ones onto the ark. This makes sense because younger dinosaurs could reproduce longer and fill the earth after the flood. At the Ark Encounter, kids 10 and under are free this year. So bring the whole family here. Plan your visit to Northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Personality trend is not what you think it is. First, I think it's really important to define what the Enneagram actually is. The word Enneagram, the first part of it, Ennea, comes from the Greek word for nine. Gramma, the second part of the word, translates to something written. This image is drawn as a circle with nine points which are connected with lines. Each number is associated with a type of personality, but this isn't what a lot of Christians think that it is. To the New Age teachers, they see the Enneagram as a sacred tool, and each type is actually a path to God, your inner divinity. It's an occultic tool. So when people see the personality types, what they're actually seeing are what's intended to be paths to enlightenment. Each number on the Enneagram sets you on a path to enlightenment, to your, your inner self, your inner divinity, your true self. The encompassing point and idea is that when, when people do things that are bad or wrong or act a certain way, they do it because they're acting in their false self. So the Enneagram was supposed to be a tool that helps people find who they actually truly are in their enlightened true self. Now, if you have connected the dots, you have seen how this has absolutely exploded in Christianity in the last few years. There's a lot of people, uh, prominent people, pastors, teachers that have talked about and and promoted the Enneagram. Uh, I'm willing to say and guess that they just simply don't understand the origins of the Enneagram, but that's why I'm making this video. I think, I think as human beings, as people, we get kind of bored, don't we? Like we, we want something new, we want something exciting. And most Christians, when they look at the Bible, it's not trendy. Uh, and sometimes they don't understand it. So what they do and what they look for is some sort of cultural fulfillment, something new that will help them to become better. It's been said that perhaps Christians have gotten bored with what the Bible has to offer. So what they've done is they go and they find a deeper, more thoughtful structure, like the Enneagram, appealing. A lot of this information that I'm going to share with you, I have learned from my friend, Marsha Montenegro. She has a wonderful website, and she has written many articles about the Enneagram. And also my friends, Don and Joy Vinot. They partnered together with Marsha and wrote a wonderful book called Richard Rohr and the Enneagram secret. I highly recommend this book. I will speak more about this book at the end of this video. Now, there are a lot of issues with the Enneagram, but I'm only going to share three main ones in this particular video. 
the first issue that I have is it's false history. If anybody ever tries to make the Enneagram more appealing because it's ancient, uh, they are wrong. <laughs> it's not. It is not ancient. The Enneagram actually originated in the late 1800s by a man named George Gurdjieff. The original Enneagram had no numbers in it at all, and it had nothing to do with personality. It was supposed to be a diagram of cosmic reality. He believed that you could actually see the universe with this, and it was meant to be a mystical, metaphysical tool. Issue number two, Richard Rohr. He is probably the biggest reason why the Enneagram is famous within Christian circles to begin with. The point of Richard Rohr talking about the Enneagram is so people could actually come in touch with their true selves. He was using and popularizing the Enneagram as a tool so people could find their inner divinity. Now, if you do not know who Richard Rohr is, he is a Catholic priest who has promoted a lot of progressive ideologies and New Age teachings. He calls himself a Christian, though, but his entire encompassing beliefs are not Christian. They are New Age. He actually lives out here in New Mexico and teaches at a center down here in Albuquerque, and I do plan on visiting that center when they reopen, and I plan on making a video about it as well. In the book, Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret, I'm going to read to you a quote from a New Age teacher. It says, the purpose of the Enneagram is not self-improvement, which would be our ego's goal. Rather, it's the transformation of consciousness so that we can realize our essence, our true self. So according to the teachers of the Enneagram and of the New Age that use this as a tool, the whole premise and point is to find that purpose within yourselves, not scripture. Once again, we find something from the occult, from the New Age, that is being Christianized and promoted as being Christian. Now, let me explain to you the core of this problem. Number three, the core issue. Okay, now some of you might at this point be saying, so what, Melissa, big deal, who cares if it has a background? It's helped me. It's helped other people. Well, let me tell you what I believe the core issue is of the Enneagram. When you are a Christian, okay, or you call yourself a Christian, you are holding yourself to a different standard, and that is the biblical standard. It's the standard that Jesus puts on you. So if you're calling this a Christian tool, you need to understand why it's not. The core issue, in my opinion, and why it's deceptive is this. You need to ask yourself this. If you're on the fence, and you're thinking that this is not a big deal or maybe we're sensationalizing this, you need to ask yourself, can you, as a Christian, formulate your identity around an object that was formulated off of contact with familiar spirits? That's the core question that you need to ask. And what else it kind of reminds me of is, is how people live within the confines of their astrological signs. You know, so if you're a tourist, then you need to have these certain traits and, and you're not going to be compatible with other people that don't have the same sign as you, or, or maybe this sign is more compatible with that sign. And you will judge somebody serially based on what their sign is. I can't tell you how many people have messaged me telling me that people have elevated the Enneagram to that level. Well, they're a four. We're not going to get along. I'm a nine. What are you? Yeah, we can't be friends. 
You know what I mean? Very similar. Another thing that this really reminds me of is the secret and the law of attraction. This was made popular many years ago, and it was actually taught by some Christians, people who claim to be Christian. This teaching is still actually being taught to this day to some degree in many word of faith uh, churches, that your words and thoughts can create your reality. But what people don't realize is that this whole concept is not ancient. It was taught as if it, it was secret knowledge that we needed to, to find again so that we can find our inner divinity. Um, but that's just, that's not how it happened. What happened is, is that this information was given to humanity by channeled spirit. I think any Bible-believing Christian would have an issue with somebody practicing the law of attraction for these reasons. So why is it okay to use an occultic tool given to us by channeled spirit to define your personality? I believe this is another example of that we're made in God's image, but we want to make God in our own image. Now, I realize this is a shorter video, but I do really want to recommend this book. Um, I talked about it in the beginning of the video. This is a mind blower. I think that it will be really hard for any Christian to read this and, and not be disturbed by the Enneagram. I think it's well-written, full of information, and it's, I would say, an easy read. It's, let's see, a little over 100 pages. I hope that you really take advantage of this resource and learn more about this topic. I will leave a link in the description of this video to this book so you can check it out. Thank you guys so much for watching. That's from uh, Lisa Doherty video. Um, the number one reason I believe the Enneagram is deceptive. And the book she's talking about is Richard, uh, no wait, um, it is not that one. Let's see. Well, check that out video and show you can see what um the the, the name of the book is. Sorry about that. And um, what I do now is uh, play this for you. This is when we understand the text. <laughs> Beware the dreaded All Hallows' Eve, or as we come to know it, Halloween. A subject of much controversy among Christians. Some participate with costumes and trick-or-treating like anyone else. Others try to redeem the holiday by calling it a fall festival or doing a trunk-or-treat. Some do Reformation Day parties. Since October 31st is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Personally, I like that one. Then there are those who choose to abstain entirely, shutting off the lights and locking everything down until the zombie apocalypse is over. Is there anything evil about dressing like Batman or Batgirl and going door-to-door -door asking for candy? No, there's really not. However, the origins of Halloween are unmistakably pagan with things a Christian should not participate in, like death and the occult. But Halloween is impossible to get away from. Once October rolls around, it's everywhere. Parents should always teach their children what is acceptable and what's not. In our hearts, we need to revere Christ as holy and honor God in all that we do. It's hard to deny door-to-door -door visitors make for a great opportunity to hand out tracts and share the gospel. As for whether or not to go trick-or-treating, the Christian is free to make that decision on their own. But don't quarrel over opinions. One person thinks of a day one way, while another thinks all days alike. Don't pass judgment on the one who abstains or on the one who eats Halloween candy. <laughs> know the origins of Halloween and study Romans 14 to help you come to an informed and biblical decision. In the process, avoid guilting others into why they should or should not participate. Everyone is to be fully convinced in their own mind when we understand the text. I have for years 
give uh, gospel tracks. If you want to um, get some good gospel tracks, you go to livingwaters.com, livingwaters.com. They have a special Halloween pack that you could get. I think it's about $25, but it gives gospel tracks, including there's one, the one called Curved Illusion. And um, you can also check out trackplanet.com, trackplanet, and track, get calling gospel tracks and other tracks. Well, that's all I got for Chupi Tolls Radio. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio. 